Please take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 3. We'll study verses 1 through 8 this morning, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible version instead of the ESV, as is our regular practice. There shouldn't be any significant difference if you're reading from the ESV, but nonetheless, just so you know. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not righteous, is he? Of course, I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he add its truths to our hearts. Let's pray again together. Father in heaven, as we come to the scriptures, O Lord, to this verse and these verses, O Lord, give us understanding. O Lord, cast light on what might be in shadow and darkness. O Lord, give us not only the understanding of the mind, but also the understanding of the heart and soul. O Lord, bring us under the weight of the conviction of our own sins, O Lord, and of our need for Jesus. O Lord, help us to cling to Him and to submit to Him by faith. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 2, Paul opens the doctrine of sin, and specifically he speaks about sin in the lives of God's people, of the people of Israel. And in verse 25, and in the verses that we studied last week through the end of chapter 2, Paul begins to pick apart false places of assurance, false things that were hidden behind, whether it is the law, whether it was circumcision, whether it was covenant identity. In verse 25, the apostle writes, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, uh, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. 
And so there again, he's touching upon the heart of the matter, and that's the heart. And in verse 29, he returns to it again. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so as Paul again and again touches upon these things that the ancient Jewish mind, the Jewish believer, the person that has been within the people of God and identified by the covenants and by the promises and raised up to hear and to know the word of God, he's pressing again and again and again, the problem is in the heart, you must have a changed heart. And here as we come to chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, the apostle deals with three objections. Three objections that somebody that hears him and this teaching might bring against him. The first of them regards the Jewish advantage. What then, is there any advantage to us having been the people of God? Is there any advantage to the promises, any advantage to circumcision? And then the second objection he touches upon is about the truth of God. If the people of God have been unfaithful, then is the word that was given to them even to be trusted? And then thirdly, the holiness of God. Is God holy? Is he holy in judging them if, even in spite of their sin, he derives glory for himself? And so the three points to put it uh, into a very clear form for you this morning in verses 1 and 2, the advantage and responsibility of owning a Bible. The advantage and responsibility of owning a Bible. Secondly, the unshakable faithfulness of God, verses 3 and 4. The unshakable faithfulness of God, verses 3 and 4. And then thirdly, the righteousness of God's judgment. The righteousness of God's judgment, verses 5 through 8. And so as Paul preaches, his regular practice was to go into the synagogue and to preach two times, three times, as many times as he could. Maybe he'd be kicked out. Sometimes that was what had happened as this itinerant preacher comes in and sits in the synagogue and opens the scroll And then what would Paul do? He would gather to himself whoever would come. And what would he then do? Well, he would open the Old Testament and he would teach Jesus in light of the teachings they already knew and in light of the New Testament teachings of the Lord himself. And so whenever Paul in verses 1 and 2 comes to answer these objections, it may be because he's already heard them. Or maybe because Paul is a logical thinker. And he thinks simply this, if any time I ever say anything and it can be misunderstood, I want to assume that it will be misunderstood. Or maybe even that people understand him rightly and then still disagree with him. And so whenever Paul in verses 1 and 2 begins uh, to pursue this, he introduces us to the first of the three questions. And so you look and you have it there in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? You see, he's touching upon the externals, the identity of the Jewish people. They're unique. They're unique in the ancient world. 
Because one, they're monotheistic. That's significant. Two, they're a distinct people group. They're Israel. But their faith is is such that it points them out as unique from amongst all of the other nations. Their faith is in the God of heaven. Yahweh, the God of a covenant. The God who's personal. Not simply an idol locked in a temple, but a God over all the heavens and all the earth. A God who knows them and has called them out by name. And a God even who has placed a sign of his own authority and a sign of his own promises into the flesh of the heads of household and all the males amongst their people in circumcision. And so Paul knows that whenever he teaches regarding circumcision that it's a matter of the heart or even in verse 25 that Yes, circumcision has value, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. That there will be some that simply say, then, well, is there anything really to it? Is there any benefit to being of the people of Israel? Or, or are you just saying, Paul, that all of the promises and all the signs of God and all of the history and the relationship of God to us as His people, that that's just nothing? Is there no advantage to the covenant? Is there no advantage in the prophecies? Is there no advantage in circumcision? After all, Paul, weren't these things that God himself ordained, that he gave as a grace, as a mercy to these people? These people didn't ask for them. They were simply given them by the appointment of God. And that's a very fair question. It's a right question for them to ask because so many of these things begin with external realities that ought to pierce the heart. And look at how Paul answers the question. In verse 2, in the question of is there any advantage to being a Jew or any value in circumcision, Paul says, much in every way, as the ESV says, Or as the New American Standard says, great in every respect. It's a resounding yes, there's so much advantage. It's an exhaustive affirmation, yes, there is an advantage in being a part of the people of God. Yes, there's an advantage in the circumcision, even of the flesh, even even for those people who didn't make any faithful profession. It's a great advantage, great in every respect, much in every way. And then Paul begins to expand his answer. And as you read, you may see that Paul, as he continues in verse 2, doesn't only just leave it out in the wind and say, yes, much in every way, but he says, first of all, or in the first place, And he says, because they were entrusted with the oracles of God or the word of God. And that's all he says. And one of the things, whenever I'm reading the Bible, that I generally pick up, and you may have also picked up, whenever somebody says, in the first place, or firstly, and then they give you some answer, you expect that there will be secondly. Especially from a preacher. In fact, if I were to say, I've got three points for you, and firstly... Here it is, and then I never go to the second point. You'll think, obviously, the pastor must have forgotten something. But I want you to read this in this way, rather, of first importance, or chiefly. That's kind of the the feel that Paul has. I don't believe Paul has forgotten the second point of his sermon. 
But rather he's emphasizing this. This is the primary or the chief benefit. This is the chief advantage of having been one of the people of Israel. And it's this. That they have been entrusted with the oracles of God. The word of God. Now, some people, as they read this and translate it, they want to isolate and make oracles only mean prophecies. It's not what Paul means. He means self-disclosure, the whole of God's word, the canon of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, given into the hands of God's people. He says, that's the advantage and that's the benefit. They were entrusted with it. And it's a thing that they weren't only given uh, just so that they could transmit it. They are entrusted with this wonderful thing for the sake of their souls. What a great advantage. And so in answer to the question, is there any benefit of being in the covenant community? Is there any benefit to having received the external sign, the sacrament of circumcision? Paul says, yeah. It stands as a word from God for you. The Jewish people have heard the mouth of the Lord speaking sweetly into their ears, into their hearts, professing His love and His compassion and His kindness and His patience to those whom He calls His children. Again and again and again and again. And in the Jewish community, especially in the Old Testament era and in the New Testament era, these were a people that didn't just have a copy of it sitting on their coffee table like all of us do. They were people who had opened it and read it and committed it to memory. And Paul says, yes. The conversational revelation of God to the heart of His children is of great importance and of great impact and of great advantage to His people. And you see, this is an interesting thing. In Paul's answer also of the benefit of circumcision, he points to the oracle of God. Where does this external sacrament, this rite of the religion of Israel find its meaning? Well, it's only in the Scriptures. Where God ordains it. To Abraham and to those who will be of his descent. It's there. But also in the flesh of the foreskin, it points them to spiritual realities, doesn't it? It's like a visible word. It's like a sign saying, look, there. You owe the God of heaven not only the external witness of your being part of God's people, but the internal truth of a converted heart. Both of these things taking place in the person so that the Lord, the God of heaven, may be proclaimed forever as Lord by his people. You see, God had done what was necessary for them to believe. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. We'll get there maybe next year. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? 
What's the great benefit of God's people in Israel? It is that they've heard the word of God and they have had preachers. You know, every time you turn to a prophetic book in the Old Testament, what you're doing is you're turning over sermon notes. They have application for God's people and context for God's people. And sometimes they do point to future realities, but very often they point to very present issues in the souls of God's people. The Jewish people had everything necessary for faith and practice written in the Word of God. Yet the testimony of Paul in chapter 2 and 3 is though they had the Word, though they had the law, though they had received external circumcision, their hearts were faithless and unconverted. Friends, isn't this the great advantage that so many of us today have and every one of us in the church have? It's the most basic advantage to you coming every Sunday. It's simply that you get to sit and whether or not you're reading it Monday through Saturday, but at least on Sunday, this is open. And if nothing else is faithful, it's read. And under the mercy of God, we pray that it is preached faithfully so that you can hear. How many of you have Bibles that are always closed? How many of you hear the word and never consider it? How many of you right now have your mind elsewhere? On other things? And not simply considering and again and again returning to these holy words to say to the Lord, have your way in me. Every one of us as Christians like the ancient Jew have many advantages and our baptism is of great benefit but apart from faith and a conversion by believing in the God of the scriptures. What is there? Maybe just more accountability. You see, having received the word bears with it responsibility. To obey the call to believe in Jesus. You see, that's what Paul's putting his finger on again. Though they were the people who had all the shadows of Christ shown through all of the Old Testament and had witnessed Christ in the flesh, yet they still had denied him. In verses 3 and 4, we have Paul turning to the second objection. And it goes like this. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Let me read it in the ESV and you'll hear it phrased slightly differently. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And you see, again, here you have these people who are listening to Paul and they're engaging with what he's saying. And he's anticipating that they will simply understand that what he is saying regarding the people of Israel is that some of them have the externals of religion without any of the heart of religion. Without faith. Faithlessness. 
having no faith in the God of the Bible or the teaching of his word. And he anticipates, or maybe he even has somebody objecting to him loudly. Well, if God's people who had the word were unfaithful, then can God himself even be trusted? Can his word be in any way reliable? And I think this is the same objection that's brought today. Maybe it's brought in the midst of scandal. Where you've got a leader in the church, maybe a preacher, a teacher, a deacon, an elder, whatever. And they've opened the word of God and they've led God's people. Yet, in the course of life, it's come to light that they have a horribly unbelieving heart. Or maybe after years, decades of what would have been considered a a faithful ministry, they then tell their church simply, I don't believe and never have I ever believed. And people are shocked. And people are shaken. And then the question arises, well, what about everything he said for so many seasons? What about all of us who sat under his ministry? He baptized us and our children. What about all that? Was any of it valid? Was any of it true? And people are shaken at the very core of who they are about their spiritual life. Can I know any of it was right? Can I know any of it was true? And it shows for us, as it shows for whoever may ask this sort of question, that their hearts and their faith really relied on a person, on a teacher, on a leader, rather and on the God of heaven and his character. And whenever Paul confronts this, he doesn't give this huge excursus. There's not a huge amount of teaching whenever he brushes it aside and answers the question. In verse 4 he says, May it never be. Absolutely not. The truth of the faith of the Bible, the truth of God is not reliant upon the professors of faith, but rather on the God of heaven who is always faithful. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. That's what Paul has to say. May it never be, by no means. Why does Paul teach that? Well, it's because of what the Bible teaches about humans, about people, and what the Bible teaches about God. Well, what does it teach about God? Well, it teaches that God is perfect in holiness, that He is everlasting in truth, that He is good, that He is kind, that He's the very standard of truth itself, the author of all that is right and righteous. That's what it teaches about God. That He is high and transcendent and lifted up and even more holy than holy angels. That's what it teaches about God. That He's so holy that His resplendent righteousness is like the burning of the sun and that angels have to fail their face to His presence. That even the thresholds of heaven shake when he speaks. What does the Bible teach about mankind? What does the Bible teach about Christians? At the inclination of the thoughts 
of the hearts of mankind is sin and sin continually. God's word uniformly teaches all of God's people to expect of their leaders and of themselves that they're little more than sinners in need of the grace of Jesus. And invited freely to just come to him to receive his mercy and his kindness. God's truth doesn't, nor has it ever, depended upon us. We have always depended upon his truth and him and his character. If there's ever a question, is the preacher a sinner? Yes, the answer is for you. Is the preacher, the pastor, are the leaders worthy of being followed of themselves? Absolutely not. They're sinners in need of grace. They need the truth of the gospel and a relationship with the Father. All a leader in the church is, all a person that is a Christian is, is simply somebody that's on their knees before the throne of grace in need of His mercy that looks over the shoulder and says, will you come with me to Him? He can supply for all your needs. He alone is the one that is true. God's truth is unshakable because it's His. It's not ours. It's not what we decide, but rather what He decides. All of His promises are true. All of His covenants are true. All of the things that He says He will give, He will give, and He has given in Jesus, and will give in the day of His coming. The third question or contention that Paul answers in verses 5 through 8 regards the righteousness of God's judgment. And it sort of seems like an outlandish objection, really. Uh, Paul says here that he's been accused by other people of this, so we know very clearly that at least this one reflects his interaction with some people. And you see, uh, as he begins to describe it, it's going to take a little bit of explanation. So in verse 5, The third question. But if our righteousness demonstrates, or our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not righteous, is he? And then Paul wants you and me and all the readers to know that these are not sanctified words, but he's speaking in a human way. He's not arguing this. He's not sincerely asking the question. It's rhetorical. A human way. In verse 6, he says, May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? And you see, what Paul is touching upon is exactly what he returns to in the book of Romans several more times. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If when we sin, God is gracious. If when He is gracious, it is glorious. Then why don't we just keep on sinning so he can keep on being glorious? Do you hear the thought process? And Paul's loud and resounding answer, verse 6, May it never be, chapter 6, by no means. 
See, the thing that they're accusing Paul of is giving license. Telling people to live however they want, that God's grace will cover over the multitude of sins. And while it's true that God's grace covers over a multitude of sins, those sins offend the holy God of heaven. It's as simple as this. They are offensive. They are contrary to his will. They're an insult. They're rebellion against him. If God is glorious in the face of our sins, if God is vindicated in the face of our sins, it is in spite of our sins as he conquers our sins. You see, Paul's just being consistent with Genesis chapter 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Sovereignty of God, the grace of God and the grip of the passage of the human life and the human life that experiences sin and that also experiences grace. May it never be. And the thing that he cites in verse 6 as evidence of the righteousness of God and the way he can continue to pour out wrath rightly upon sinful people is this the coming judgment of the world and he just mentions it for otherwise how will God judge the world he makes no argument for the final judgment he assumes it as a reality and he simply says the righteousness of God's judgment is according to himself If it is glorious, it's glorious in spite of your unrighteousness. You see, the argument is something like this. Well, you see, we've developed this new treatment for third-degree burn patients. And we think it's very effective. And it would impress and revolutionize the whole of the medical field. But at present... We don't have any third-degree burn patients, so we're taking volunteers. Anybody want to take on third-degree burns just so you can see just how great this is? And that analogy fails. It certainly does. But you hear the absurdity. No one would volunteer for that, and why would anybody then volunteer for a life of license and sin that's lived against the God of heaven who is righteous, who will pour out wrath, who is pleased to pour out grace on any who would receive it, mercy on any who would receive it. And a simple question for all then is this. Will you give up false senses of assurity? Whether it's identity as being part of a church or part of a people group or part of those who have received circumcision or baptism, Will you give it up? Will you give up the question of the skeptic that tries to undo the teaching of God or simply thinks, well, it has to be shown in another person before I'll ever believe it? And will you give up this false sense of assurance that's going to hide under the, the grace of God and simply submit your heart to Jesus and say, have it all. Change my mind, change my heart, my affections, my taste, my person. I want your love and I want to love you.
Oh, Lord Jesus, save me. That's what it's boiling down to, and that's what it's traveling toward here in Paul's text. And so I would press you again, have you faith in Christ? Not me, not in this church, not in Reformed theology or Protestant theology or conservatism or anything like it. Not in your baptism, but only in your Lord. You have faith in Him. In Him. Not in the family you grew up in. Not in how many church services you've been to. Not in how nice you dress or how comfortable you feel here today. But in Him, would you have Him? Nothing else is sufficient. Nothing else could possibly be simpler and simply crying out, Jesus, save me, a sinner. Would you do it this morning? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. Oh Lord, for their teaching. Oh Lord, for the power that you express in them and through them in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. And Lord, if anything wrong has been taught, that Lord, you would cover over it. Oh, Father, that you would minister to us individually and corporately as your people. Oh, Lord, that we would not only be those that receive the oracles, the teaching of your word, but that we would receive your Son, who they always speak of. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.